Welcome to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. The time of federal protection for legal abortions appears to be coming to an end. If reporting on the U.S. Supreme Court's intentions regarding Roe v. Wade is correct, nearly half of the nation's states are poised to ban abortions. There are a number of potential consequences for Native Americans, many of them connected with high rates of poverty, sexual assault, and access to health care. We'll get context and take your calls, coming up right after the news. This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. A 16-foot killer whale totem pole is traveling through the upper Pacific Northwest. As KLCC's Brian Bull reports, it's to raise awareness of indigenous people's calls to remove four dams from the Snake River. Through May, the carving is traveling through Oregon, Washington, and Idaho, including stops of Native American tribes. The pole is at the University of Oregon until Sunday before heading out to Astoria. Jewel James is the Lummi Master Carver accompanying the pole. He says the dams interfere with salmon migration, which in turn disrupts the feeding cycles of killer whales. We're hoping that we're tapping into the mind and the conscience of the observers, that we're awakening them to the need to stand up and give voice. Our congressmen, they have the power to say, okay, remove the dams. Let's take a vote. And the only way they're going to ever support that is if the people speak out. Dam supporters, largely Republican lawmakers, argue the dams provide hydropower as well as irrigation and river navigation. For National Native News, I'm Brian Bull in Eugene, Oregon. The Federation of Sovereign Indian Nations and Residential School Survivors want Pope Francis to visit the Muscogan Indian Residential School, which is the last standing residential school in Saskatchewan. They're calling on the Canadian Conference of Catholic Bishops to arrange the visit when the Pope is expected to travel to Canada in July. In April, Pope Francis apologized to Indigenous people in Canada for the Catholic Church's role in Indian residential schools. First Nations leaders and residential school survivors gathered outside the school Monday, where they held a press conference, which was streamed live by APTN National News. Muscogan First Nation Chief Jamie Wolfe says the Pope's visit to their land to apologize would mean a lot to many First Nations people. I wouldn't want to watch something like that on TV. I would want the person here in, in person to have him come and say sorry for what you had to endure in this school. Vice Chief of the Federation of Sovereign Indian Nations, Dave Pratt, was among a delegation to meet with the Pope in Rome at the end of March and early April. I know that we do have some work to do. We're going to continue to push for healing. We know that a lot of healing has to take place for our people. We know that there's not one of us that has not felt this impacts of the residential schools. Both my parents were survivors. Every one of us either attended or had our parents or our grandparents. And some of us went three, four, five generations to the residential schools. And we all experienced terrible things within that system. Archbishop of Regina, Saskatchewan, Donald Bolin, says he supports the First Nation and school survivors, but says there are very few locations Pope Francis will be able to visit due to health reasons. Pope Francis's health is not good. He, I, I've just come from Rome, returned last night for different kinds of meetings, but 
Uh, I was at a at a public gathering where Pope Francis was there on Friday morning, and he's now in a wheelchair, and uh, hopefully not for too long. But he's he's not in good health. According to the FSIN, Saskatchewan had 22 Indian residential schools that housed tens of thousands of First Nations children. Many students were physically, mentally, sexually, and spiritually abused, and many did not make it home. Last year, an investigation found 35 graves at the Muskaugan Indian Residential School. The U.S. Department of the Interior has extended the deadline for nominations for the Secretary's Tribal Advisory Committee for tribal leaders to have direct communication with Secretary Deb Holland. Nominations will now be accepted through May 16th. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Support by Sanofsky Chambers Law, championing tribal sovereignty and Native American rights since 1976, from opioids litigation to treaty rights to tribal self-governance, with offices in Washington, D.C., New Mexico, California, and Alaska. Sanofsky Chambers Law. Support by the Native American Disability Law Center, a non-for-profit 501c3 at 800-862-7271 or nativedisabilitylaw.org. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. This is Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. There is no debate more divisive than the one over the legality of abortion. And it appears, if reporting by Politico is correct, that the legal structure provided by the Supreme Court decision Roe v. Wade that we have been living under for nearly 50 years is about to change drastically. If the decision is overturned, then it will be up to each state legislature to determine whether access to abortions is allowed. Today, we'll get perspectives on what that might mean for Native women and men. The arguments about whether abortion should be safe and legal are well established on both sides, and anything said this hour is not likely to change anyone's mind. But how banning the procedure for the first time in over a generation will affect Native people is an open question. And we hope to get that discussion started. As always, we welcome you, our listeners, into the conversation. Will a ban in your state hurt Native women? Or is it a blessing that creates a new era of personal responsibility that is long overdue? We know the topic quickly turns emotional. We hope to keep our conversations civil. With that said, the number to call to share your thoughts, 1-800-996-2848. That's 1-800-99-NATIVE. On the show today, and joining us from Oklahoma, is Isla Haas. She's an assistant professor of law at the University of Tulsa College of Law. Isla, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. Isla, last week, this draft opinion that was leaked that indicates the Supreme Court could soon overturn Roe versus Wade, it just exploded. It's all over the media. Um, we're seeing protests, lots of coverage, outrage on both sides of the issue. 
And uh, at stake here is the legality of abortions. Um, could they become a state issue as opposed to a strictly federal issue? Um, I think it will really help our listeners if we lead off with some context. What does all this really mean for Native America right now? Well, it's going to mean a lot. So already American Indians and Alaska Natives are disproportionately uh, access, uh, have less access to health care, and that also includes abortion care. And part of that has to do with location when we're thinking about uh, rural America for many indigenous people who are living in rural parts of the country, you're going to have a lot farther to go in terms of accessing abortion care. The other piece of this is our federal Indian health system. So what's shorthand called the ITU system, health care provided by the federal government as required by treaty, trust responsibility, and statute um, through IHS, tribal direct facilities through 638 facilities or urban Indian health centers are bound by the Hyde Amendment. And the Hyde Amendment limits the use of federal appropriations on abortion care, and that includes at IAHS facilities or federally funded tribal 638 facilities, with a few exceptions. So already you're going to even have less access in terms of in, uh, to abortion care in Indian country because of it. Now, Ella, when you talk about access, um, there, there are states such as Oklahoma, North Dakota, South Dakota, Wyoming, Idaho, Arizona. These are just some of the states that currently have laws restricting abortions, and things will really change in these states if Roe versus Wade is overturned. These are also some states that have significant Native American populations. However, you also have states such as Minnesota, New Mexico, where there aren't currently laws restricting abortions. Um, so what about Native people that are living in those states that are are much more lenient and much more pro-choice in just the overall political makeup and currently how their laws are, are on the books. What will it mean for those folks, like say for somebody in New Mexico where there currently aren't any laws restricting abortions and it's a state that leans heavily to the left. I think it's doubtful that, um, that a, a pro-life movement would, would take hold in that state and, create uh, a ban on abortions. What does it mean for somebody living in a state like that, a native person? Yeah, well, I, a lot of it's going to have to do in terms of um, where they're accessing care. So in a state, for example, like you said, New Mexico, where you're not going to see some of the same laws that you're going to see in Oklahoma or North Dakota, then we are, it's going to be a lot easier for anybody to be able to access abortion care and absolutely um, to in support uh, providing that care for Native America. Now, we also have to consider, however, that the Hyde Amendment is still going to be in place, and that's going to be limiting the uh, types of abortions that are performed um, using federal funding. And so if you are a Native person seeking care through ITU, through Indian Health Service, Tribal 638, or an Indian Health Facility, uh, even in a state like New Mexico, then it, you might not be able to receive that kind of care with certain exceptions at those facilities. And so um, 
then you look at a state where I'm based, like Oklahoma, and then you're going to be even further limited by the state laws that could potentially um, take effect. And uh, that is going to further limit access. Now, Ila, you mentioned those restrictions that even in a state like New Mexico could still make it very difficult for somebody to obtain an abortion. What are those restrictions? Yeah, so under the Hyde Amendment, it and uh, similar language, it's been put into federal law that limits federal appropriations to the Department of Health and Human Services from providing abortions using those federal funds. And the exceptions to include uh, instances of uh, rape, incest, um, and medical. Challenging because it's going to be through the Department of Health and Human Services. Uh, Tribal 638 facility is going to be funded through. Department of Health and Human Service, Health and Human Services, same with urban Indian health facilities. And so in order to have, let's say, a tribal health facility provide an abortion, they're going to have to segregate their funds and not use federal funding in order to provide that kind of care, unless we see some sort of changes in terms of uh, congressional action uh, repealing the Hyde Amendment. Okay. Well, let's bring another guest into the conversation now. Joining us from Lake Andes, South Dakota is Sharon Asatoya. She's the executive director and CEO of the Native American Community Board, which is a parent organization to the Native American Women's Health Education Resource Center. She's Comanche. Sharon, welcome back to the show. Thank you very much. Well, we just heard Isla mention some of these um restrictions in which um, a Native person might not be able to obtain an abortion because of the Hyde Amendment and, you know, mentioning some of these issues like rape, incest. Um, And yeah, it's really compelling when we hear information like that. But do we have data to know how often those situations arise in our Native communities, these extenuating circumstances, these mitigating factors um, that some might consider with regard to somebody who's maybe been a victim of a rape and wants to have an abortion, what are the numbers for those types of incidents? Do we know? Um, well, it's it's pretty well known that, uh, according to the Department of Justice, that Native women are um, to be sexually assaulted than any other race or an ethnic group in this country. And so that puts us at really high risk for falling into the category of rape and incest. Um, so uh, knowing just how high those um, statistics are and those numbers are in our communities, um, you know, it's really sad that the uh, federal government um, has all these financial restrictions on, uh, on abortion because we don't have that much uh, choice because we are rural. We are reservation and our primary health care provider is the Indian Health Service, which is a, a subsidiary of, <clears throat> excuse me, Health and Human Services. So <clears throat> we're really in a whole different category than, uh, than other women 
And um, so I live in South Dakota, and South Dakota has very restrictive uh, abortion uh, laws and make it as difficult as possible for a woman to be able to access uh, that particular health service. There's only one provider in the whole state of South Dakota, and there are um, waiting periods by uh, for counseling um, between that and the procedure, and then required after, uh, okay. you know, for aftercare. So sure. that makes it even more difficult. And Sharon, you mentioned South Dakota, where you're at, and South Dakota does have a law restricting abortions as I mentioned earlier, and it has a trigger law. So in the event that Roe versus Wade is overturned and that could happen as, as early as next month, um, what does that mean exactly for Native people living in South Dakota should that occur? It means that it will be even more uh, difficult to access abortion. That means that we'll have to leave the state of South Dakota to be able to access that service. Um, and so uh, that's going to make it much, much more difficult for for Native women to have access. Um, we've always... Okay. Uh, okay. We're going to have to... I'm sorry, we're going to have to take a break here, just a short one. But if you have any questions or comments, uh, listeners out there, please give us a call, one 800 996 2848. We're talking about this recently leaked opinion from the Supreme Court regarding a possible overturning of Roe versus Wade, a 50-year-old um, issue that uh, has certainly resurfaced in a big way here in 2022. I'm Sean Spruce. You're listening to Native America Calling. We'll be right back. Colorado tourist destination promises an authentic Pueblo experience, complete with ancient cliff dwellings. The trouble is the site has no connection to Pueblo ancestors and no Native people built the structures. We'll learn more about the Manitou cliff dwellings on the next Native America Calling. If you're hurting in your relationship or have been affected by sexual violence, Strong Hearts Native Helpline is a no-charge, 24-7, confidential and anonymous domestic, dating, and sexual violence helpline for Native Americans. Help is available by calling 1-844-7-NATIVE or by clicking on the chat icon on strongheartshelpline.org. This program is supported by Strong Hearts Native Helpline. Thanks for tuning in to Native America Calling today. I'm Sean Spruce. We're trying to get to the heart of the abortion debate today. Not whether it's right or wrong, but what the likelihood of a new legal reality means for Native people. How will Native women fare in states where abortion is outlawed? Does it even matter what happens on the federal level, so long as states are compelled to do what they consider is right? Call in 1-800-996-2848. Is our number. Sharon, I'm sorry you were talking about uh, what could happen potentially in South Dakota should Roe versus Wade be overturned. Please continue with your train of thought. Well, we're going to, uh, you know, have to leave the state to be able to access the service. Um, and, and that makes it more um, 
challenging financially and, um, you know, in, in also in terms of, uh, you know, the travel, um, having to spend, uh, uh, travel a distance and spend an extra night on the road. Uh, and, th- and that really makes, almost makes it impossible for some women. You know, for non-Native women, a lot of white women can jump on a plane and fly to another city, um, another state, and access abortion. For us, it's a lot different. Um, we don't have those uh, kinds of uh, resources and uh, to be able to be that mobile. So uh, it makes it very difficult for us. And um, there's been a lot of talk of, you know, having a, uh, an abortion clinic on a reservation. But that is, I mean, that would be way down the road. Um, that is just something that is not going to happen right now. Uh, well, there was so, an attempt wow. to do that uh, at Pine Ridge uh, more than a decade ago, and it did, uh, that was put down pretty quickly, right? There was a, a tribal leader there that made that attempt, and that didn't, didn't come to fruition. Uh, but, Sharon, I'm interested because we're seeing states such as New York and Oregon working to create funds that will pay for abortion access for not only their own residents, but also people from out of state. And some of these proposals even include travel and lodging expenses. What are your thoughts on that? Could that be an option for some Native people in South Dakota? Well, that would be great. But um, you how do you touch base with those? Uh, potential resources and, um, you know, how long is it going to take um, to access them? I mean, that, that's another thing. And then, you know, that means getting on a plane and flying, whether somebody's paying for it or not. Um, and that's just a, that's almost an impossibility. I mean, if you've got three or four children at home, uh, no one to take care of them. Um, yeah, that's that's going to be quite a quite a feat in itself. So there's a lot of logistic uh, issues that um, that are just uh, not feasible uh, for for us. And so, um, you know, are they going to pay for every single woman that can't afford an abortion? I mean, that that can be astronomical in itself. What about a state such as Minnesota that's much closer to South Dakota? Would it be? I mean, they don't currently have any laws on the books banning abortion. It's a much more liberal state in that regard. Could that be an option, much closer to home than perhaps Oregon or New York, like I mentioned? It is. It is closer. But again, you have to have the resources to be able to travel the distance. You know, if you're coming from uh, from where I live or even Pine Ridge, uh, you know, you have a day of travel to get there. So you have to have a good running car. You have to have money to pay for the gas and then again the lodging. So these extra res- plus the procedure. So these extra um, resources make it just almost impossible for, for many women. It's mm-hmm. just not uh, something that, you know, we have the, the finances to be able to pull off in, in many instances. As I lo- it is now, there are women who um, who ask other women to help them, um, you know, pay for their abortions. And we have funds and, and uh, 
and uh, we try to try to access uh, those women who will donate money toward uh, women to try to make up enough money to pay for an abortion now. So it's it's not an easy it's not an easy thing for for a woman that has no money to be able to access an abortion. Sure, sure, yeah, really good point, Sharon. And I I want to bring you back into the conversation because there's. Sharon mentioned how, you know, the possibility at some point of maybe a, a clinic being on tribal lands in South Dakota or another state. And a lot of people have mentioned that, you know, could tribes potentially use their sovereignty in some of these states to still do abortions on their own tribal lands? Is that feasible, Isla? It is feasible, but not without a lot of lawyering. So what that would take is both a commitment firm a tribe to be able to provide that kind of clinic, segregating funds so that federal funds are not going to be in play in this triggering the Hyde Amendment ban. The other issue that comes into play is where that tribe is located, because if it's within the boundaries of a state like Oklahoma, you're going to have to also navigate these criminal and civil laws that they have on the books. So in the context of criminal jurisdiction, uh, federal Indian law tells us that the factors that we care about is the identity of the victim as non-Indian or Indian, the identity of the defendant, Indian and non-Indian, and the type of crime. And so if we are talking about like Oklahoma's law that criminalizes the provision of abortion care, so criminalizing the actual physician, and if they were an Indian within the boundaries of the reservation, then the state's not going to have jurisdiction. But if you're talking about a healthcare provider who's not Indian, well, there could be a possibility of, uh, and then providing care, let's say, to a uh, non-Indian, or uh, depending, the other piece of this is, you know, what kinds of crimes are considered victimless crimes, and that's going to really depend on the language of the statute, then that are all factors in which you'd have to be navigating avoiding criminal jurisdiction. And the other piece of this is civil jurisdiction. And so Oklahoma has a copycat law similar to Texas's Senate Bill 8, allowing for just any person, any member of the public to assert, uh, juris- uh, to, uh, uh, assert um, a litigation for someone who performs or uh, an abortion in violation of the act and that has both civil penalties and injunctive penalties and uh, financial penalty penalties attached to it. So navigating civil jurisdiction, particularly when a state wants to enforce a civil law on tribal lands, can be really complicated um, even when we're talking about a tribal member. So let's say a physician providing abortion care. The federal courts are, have been really unpredictable in terms of when they have allowed a state regulation, whether it's a hunting and fishing license or some sort of liquor license. And so it's not a guarantee that a federal court could look at this and say, oh, we're not going to allow state jurisdiction. And then the other piece in terms of civil jurisdiction, so basically anything that's not criminal jurisdiction, is licensing. So a provider, a physician, needs to be licensed. If they are providing care as part of the federal 
Indian Health System, ITU, then federal law says they can be licensed in any jurisdiction. It doesn't have to be just within the state that, uh, 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 that the reservation is located in. However, that is not uh, going to be the case when they are providing that care outside of the ITU, which they're going to have to do because of the Hyde Amendment unless it gets repealed. And so a state like Oklahoma as part of their condition to maintaining your license to be a physician says that you have to be professional and engage in ethical conduct and unethical unprofessional conduct includes violating criminal laws and could even consider violation of criminal laws in other states even without a conviction so there's also a real threat in terms of losing your license okay now i'm glad you're in oklahoma and i'm glad you're you're mentioning these um issues with regard to civil jurisdiction and criminal jurisdiction because as we all know the McGirt ruling just completely changed that whole jurisdictional landscape in parts of Oklahoma and could the McGirt ruling have any impact on how or whether or not abortions could be legally performed in some of these tribal areas in Oklahoma? Yeah so what's really important about the McGirt decision is that it didn't change the current laws that govern criminal and civil jurisdiction vis-a-vis tribe states and the federal government. What it has done is reaffirmed reservation boundaries and the McGirt decision specifically, the Muscogee Nation reservation boundaries and then subsequent cases, uh, the reservation boundaries of the other five tribes in Eastern Oklahoma reaffirmed those reservation boundaries. And so why that's very significant is that in order for there to be a uh, tribal jurisdiction, first and foremost, the location of the conduct, whether it's criminal or civil, needs to be in Indian country. And that's defined broadly as the outer boundaries of the reservation. And so we're talking now post-McGirt, even though it didn't change the the jurisdictional tests for criminal civil jurisdiction, we're talking about much of eastern Oklahoma that's going to be implicated and and tribes whose membership are quite large. Their population, their citizenship is quite large. And so this is the volume of folks that are going to be impacted by a shift in criminal or civil law is huge. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, thank you for those insights. And let's bring the conversation um, back to the whole issue of abortion. And again, I'm, I'm really curious to learn more about where some Native people stand on this issue. So anybody with any insights, any observations, any thoughts to share, please give us a call, 1-800-996-284. Regardless of what your opinion is, we really want to hear it on the air today. So again, give us a call, 1-800-996-2848. And Sharon, along that line, we're hearing statements from some Native people that abortion is not traditional, some from the pro-life side of the argument. And how do you see tradition, Native tradition coming into play here? Does it have a place in an issue that is this hot and divisive? Well, it certainly does. Uh, Native women uh, have always had the uh, right to decide um, the size of our families and whether or not we're going to have a family or not. It was never thrusted out into the political arena to be decided by our male counterparts. 
it was something that was left up to uh, to us as women, as individuals. Our, our opinion was respected, and our decision was also respected, and it was final. So um, when people say, you know, we never did abortion, that's, that's not true. We had uh, techniques, we had herbs, medicines um, that would terminate a pregnancy. And so uh, it wasn't until um, the imposition of Christianity and its um, very conservative uh, uh, judgmental uh, policies that, that uh, started, you know, condemning us for practicing our traditional uh, medicines and techniques. And, I mean, they, they tried to aban- uh, abolish everything from uh, natural birthing, um, the traditional midwifery, to, um, you know, termination, pregnancy termination. So, um, yes, we have always had um, that, that knowledge. And years ago, uh, we've been around for about 35 years now, and when we first started doing women's health uh, and reproductive issues, we convened a, a panel of, of elders, and they were all like 70s and 80s and 90s and back then. And they shared information with us um, about uh, the various techniques and herbs and, and methods, and that it is true that, that Native women have always had this, um, okay, okay. this knowledge. Understood, understood. Um, and we did reach out for a voice, a native voice from the pro-life side of the issue to come on our show today. We were not able to bring somebody on. But in the absence of that voice, Sharon, let me just ask you, because you speak of native communities, native people, native traditions that uh, in their history have these medicines, these herbs, these practices that you mentioned. But there are also can you can you broadly speak on behalf of all native nations and all native cultures because i know that there have been some opinion pieces written in some tribal newspapers there have been some native people that have been very vocal with regard to their own native traditions and culture that would argue the opposite they would say that in their cultural um practices that abortion was not practiced traditionally and never has been what would you say in the interest of argument to a voice like that from the native pro-life side of the issue? Well, um, the majority of the women that we've worked with, um, when you, when you uncover the layers or peel the layers of, of the, uh, the Western colonization, uh, on our people, um, those practices were there. I mean, it was a matter of survival, of famine, war, uh, pestilence. I mean, you know, there were situations where um, it wasn't it wasn't thought of as abortion like we think of it in the Western mindset. It was something that you had to do to be able to survive and to take care of the family that you may have already had. So, okay, um, you've made that point. I'm sorry, Sharon, you've made that point before, but there, I mean, there are so many Native people who do oppose abortion on religious terms. They are, they are deeply held religious beliefs. They might not be speaking up here on our show today, but it's safe to assume that they're out there. What do you say to them, these people that oppose it on religious terms? 
Well, that's their right. I mean, that is their right. If they want to um, believe in those ways, if they want to object to it, you know, nobody is forced to have an abortion. And, but it, it is a woman's, a woman knows what is best for her and her family. And it should be left up to a woman to decide that. And so not for somebody to impose their restrictions or their religious beliefs. It is my right to decide for me what I'm going to do with my body. Okay. And so under that ideology, under that mindset, um, I, I'm not, you know, telling somebody they can't do that or they can't be pro-choice. Um, you know, it's up to them. And I will respect their decision. I just want them to respect my right to decide for myself. Okay. If you've got a question, if you've got a comment, if you want to share your thoughts, please, phone lines are open, 1-800-996-2848. We'll be back after this break. 1-800-3-1-8-2-5-9-6 1-800-3-1-8-2-5-9-6 We're glad you could join us on Native America Calling today. I'm your host, Sean Spruce. Still time left to get your comment or question on the air about the effect the expected decision on Roe versus Wade will have on Native Americans. 1-800-996-2848. We're waiting for your call. And we actually have a caller on the line right now, Justin, listening on KUNM in New Mexico. Justin, thank you for coming on the show. Yeah, thank you. What's on your mind, Justin? Oh, no, I just wanted to state that, yeah, I, I support abor- abortion. I mean, um, a lot of, uh, I guess, part of the, um, so a lot of our culture comes from, like, from the women because we're matri- matriarchal. And so I just think that we should trust their their, their own opinions of, of their own bodies. And also the thing that gets lost is they they have a lot they had a lot of their own ways too that we lost with like european um colonialism colonialism with the with the catholic church and everything so i just know that before that time that we entrusted our women with a lot of things before that and i think we should continue that well justin thank you so much for calling in sharing those thoughts and let's run with that that, that issue that you just broached, and speaking with us now is Nicole Martin in Albuquerque, New Mexico. She's the co-founder and sex educator of Indigenous Women Rising. She's Navajo, Laguna, Chiricahua, Apache, and Zuni. Nicole, thank you for coming on the show today. Hello, thank you for having me. Well, you bet, Nicole. And again, we're talking about this whole issue of abortion. We're talking about reproduction, reproductive rights, excuse me. And we just had Justin comment that, you know, we really need to kind of hands off. And and this is a women's issue and and women have ways of of dealing with this in our Native communities. And they have for for many, many years in some of our communities. And Sharon also um, 
reiterated that same basic premise. So um, tell us, Nicole, right now, um, what kind of access do Native women generally have to abortion services and support there in New Mexico where you are? Yeah, I just want to say thank you, Justin and Sharon. Um, Indigenous Woman Rising is located here in Tiwa Territory, Albuquerque, New Mexico. And we, Indigenous Woman Rising, we believe in the full spectrum of health care. And since 2018 was the first time that we launched our abortion fund that we have that serves our Indigenous relatives and community members that are seeking abortion care. And our fund is actually open to um, not just women because we know that abortion care is more than just a woman's issue. Um, our abortion fund, and we have funded trans and non-binary relatives, uh, two-spirit relatives who sought abortion care, um, typically outside of the state of New Mexico. We may be located in New Mexico, but we've helped relatives in the key states that you had mentioned er earlier, such as Arizona, Oklahoma, and North Dakota, um, because New Mexico, we're so we're so fortunate to have the greatest um, access to abortion care um, in this area, and so we Medicaid um, covers abortion care here in the state of New Mexico. So we don't typically fund. Um, our relatives here because they already have uh, coverage through Medicaid. Um, but what we do provide funding, um, what they need help with is like practical support. So uh, transportation, gas, you know, um, food, childcare, hotel, as Sharon was mentioning earlier, or you guys were discussing earlier, like the trigger law with South Dakota, right? Like what would happen, but it's already been happening because we've already funded um, relatives in South Dakota to travel out of South Dakota to receive their health care. Um, okay. And Nicole, I'm interested in learning more about how this fund works. So for example, a Native person in South Dakota or a Native person in Oklahoma that wants to have an abortion there in New Mexico, What's that process? Like, how do you connect with those individuals and and get them to New Mexico? Yes. Yeah, so since 2018, we've been um, diligently networking, um, trying to get what our fund does out there. Um, sometimes it's uh, clinics, uh, word of mouth, right? Um, we... Oh, since September 1st, when Texas put in their SB8 ban, we've grown into working into 37 states, with clinics across 37 states. Um, and so what are, how we, um, how people apply for our funding is there is a phone number and there are, we have a website as well. It takes you to our application form and you provide the information um, that we need. We're, we're HIPAA compliant, and so everything is safe with us. Um, they, and we know that blood quantum is a, is a colonial concept, um, and we ask for certificate of um, 
Indian blood or if you don't have a CID or any form um, that you're enrolled in a tribal government because we are, yeah, because we know that there have been relatives too that have, um, where their tribes have been disenrolled. And so we accept like letters from their community members who claim them. Um, and we accept uh, pictures of them in their regalia because we've also had people, non-Indigenous people say like, but I'm native to America. And it's, and it gets hard because it's like, well, you know, most communities claim you and recognize you. So like what community claims you? And um, yeah, they go through that process. Are okay. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, thank you for that background, Nicole. We have a caller on the line, Mike, listening on KRSM in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Mike, you're on Native America Calling. Yes, hi. Thank you for taking my call. I was just happened to be listening to the last speaker um, who mentioned, first of all, I, I'm not Native American. I have uh, extreme admiration for Native Americans. Several of my friends uh, have to be Native American. Throw that out there um, that I, I, I can't empathize completely with uh, the circumstance and how it affects Native Americans. Um, I just, from my perspective, with that previous um, uh, speaker who was mentioning the whole, you know, no one should be telling a woman to do with her body, um, I just, the concern is held consensus that drugs, for example. Well, that's the government telling us what we can and can't do with our body. The whole idea that a woman knows exactly what she can do with her body and she can't, that, that's true for the majority of women, but it's not true for all women. And I think speaking from a pro-life standpoint, I'm not so as concerned about the woman's body as I am about the body inside the body. That's where my concern is. And if I might be so bold as to speak on behalf of a lot of pro-life individuals, um, that's what we're talking about. We're not talking about uh, squelching people's ability to make decisions. We're talking about preservation of life, really ultimate what we're talking about. And when we narrow down on these cases that people like to throw back in our face about, you know, what about, um, you know, rape and, and incest and things like that, and, and uh, those are horrific, but they also make up a very small majority of, of abortion cases. And so that's, it, it needs to be taken into consideration that that's what we're fighting for. We're fighting for um, to, to, to get rid of the ability to just erase a bad Saturday night. Um, and, and that's, I, I apologize if this is frustrating anyone, but that's what we're gunning for here. We want people to think about their actions. We want people to take accountability and know that if they're going to be, if they're going to engage in these practices, uh, human life is a byproduct, um, and it's a beautiful by byproduct. It's a beautiful thing, and that's what we were hoping to preserve, and I hope that makes sense. Mike, thank you so much for calling in and sharing your thoughts. And it's such a, a complex, it's such a nuanced issue. There are so many gray areas. The timeline, for example, between when an abortion is performed and the anticipated birth date, should abortions be taxed? 
taxpayer funded? What happens in the case of a rape or incest? Like Mike mentions, should a person have to reveal why they are choosing an abortion? These are gray areas where polls consistently indicate that many Americans are divided. And I want to ask you, Nicole, um, what do you have to say to the mics of the world who say, hey, this is it's not just a, a woman's right. There's a there's a baby, a life, another life involved, a baby's right, for example. What's what's your response, Nicole? My response to all of the mics in the world um, that how is how do they justify then, you know, the continued colonization that's going on to lives that are not here within the United States, like Palestine, you know, how can and not even that even our relatives our migrating relatives at the border who are in ICE detention centers don't their lives matter too you know mm -hmm. um there's a lot of there can be so many right and this is has has been a discussion going on and on and on um since colonization right since colonization came and told indigenous people what type of religion they should practice how their families should be set up um how women should carry themselves that's why a lot of our matriarchal roles and leadership have been disenfranchised. And so talking about a fetus's rights, right? Like you can't claim a fetus or a baby on your tax returns. Why? Because the government doesn't consider the fetus to be a person yet. Mm. So it doesn't, you know, with what Texas is doing in S with their SB8 ban, the six-week ban, most pregnant people don't even know they're pregnant until eight weeks. So it's not even the uh, we're, we're advocating for a right to life. It's kind of backwards. It's we're advocating for our rights, our human decency, our, you know, right to parent and not or not parent. And that shouldn't be um, put in the colonizer's hands in the form of the Supreme Court of the United States. The Supreme Court of the United States is a fallacy because it's on stolen land. And I want okay. all the mics to remember that. Nicole, thank you so much. Um, thank you so much for that response. We have another caller on the line, Randa, Santa Fe, New Mexico, listening on KUNM. Randa, you're on Native America Calling. Hi, and thank you so much. And Nicole, thank you for all you shared. And yes, the um, patriarchal, colonial mentality of controlling women's bodies who are the ones that know if they can raise another child. Um, I had to give up my baby for adoption, um, and uh, there was no abortion available, and uh, we have a relationship today. However, she has suffered long-term trauma from separation uh, from her mother placed into the arms of a stranger, and I have uh, long-term trauma. And so it's not simple. Uh, our Creator created us to raise our own children to the best of our ability and to know if we can or we can't. And I say to the men that are pro-life is go into the junior highs and the high schools and work with those young men that uh, force themselves on a, on a date with this young woman. 
uh, and that they impregnate her, and then she has to go through this trauma. Don't dump it all on the woman. The men need to take responsibility. Um, but adoption is not an easy solution. It is horrific. It's lifelong. It's, it never ends. Uh, so, Randa, I'm, I'm, Randa, I'm sorry. So I'm just for clarification. And so you had a child that you put up for adoption because you were not able to access an abortion. But were you to relive that experience over, you would have chosen an abortion as opposed to letting that um, child live? Uh, yes, I'm glad she's on the planet, but if you are living in poverty and you're single and you have no uh, community or family support to help you with daycare so you can go out and get a job, it just, I mean, I i looked at all the options and it's like they, they set it up, not this way in a lot of other countries. To make it as impossibly hard as possible, and as we know, more than 50% of marriages end in divorce, where the woman ends up uh, doing it all on her own. So, um, yeah, I, I, um, it's too hard. They don't tell you the truth of what adoption is. I mean, these bonds that mothers form to their babies are profound, and the, the, the. I was part of a reunion of a mother, uh, uh, Pima Apache, young mother, with her okay. baby. Randa, I'm sorry. I'm going to have to go ahead and cut you off because we are running out of time on the show. But I do want to bring Sharon back into the conversation. And, and Sharon, where can our listeners go to learn more about your organization and the work you do? Uh, they can go on uh, our website. It's called nativeshop.org. And um, the uh, website tells a lot about what we do and how to get a hold of us. Thank you so much. And that is all the time we have for our conversation. And let me thank our guests again, Sharon Atsatoya, Isla Rojas, and Nicole Martin for a well-thought and nuanced analysis on the impact of a possible overturning of Roe versus Wade on Native American people. We're back again tomorrow. Join us here live, and we'll be talking about a tourist attraction in Colorado that promises visitors an authentic Pueblo experience. However, no Native people were involved in its construction or operation. That's tomorrow here on Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. Thank you, as always, for listening. Program support by Amerind. For 35 years, Indian country has put its trust in Amerind, providing insurance coverage, strengthening Native American communities, protecting tribal sovereignty, and keeping dollars in Indian country are Ameren's priorities. More information on property, liability, workers' compensation, and commercial auto needs at Ameren.com. That's A-M-E-R-I-N-D.com. CMS program, contact local Indian health care provider. Center for Medicare and Medicaid Service
Native America Calling is produced in the Annenberg National Native Voice Studios in Albuquerque, New Mexico by Kwanak Broadcast Corporation, a native nonprofit media organization. Funding is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from the Public Radio Satellite Service. Music is by Brent Michael Davis. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.